Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe. I am your host, writer-creator David Collins Rivera, and this is Episode 7, where we'll be tucking into the scrumptious subject of food in the future. What do you do when you're feeling peckish and the nearest diner is light years away? How do you feed hundreds of billions of people spread throughout the stars? And what sorts of cuisines are favorites with spacers, stationers, and colonizers of alien worlds? We'll have the answers to these questions and many more right after the update. been a while since the last episode. Sorry about that, but at least I've been working on book four, All He Surveys, and am now over halfway done with the first draft. I know, I know that would have been much more impressive if it had happened months ago, but there's been stuff and things and reasons and whatever. Instead, let's think about what's coming up. I mean, you can anticipate the future, either with promise or dread, but you can't be disappointed by it. Disappointment lives in the present. It doesn't matter what I thought I was going to do, and it doesn't matter what I told you I was going to do. That was then, this is now, and tomorrow is yet to be written. I choose to live in hope and invite you to join me there. It's a regular party. Kidding aside, one thing to look out for is that I'm going to be making some changes to the Patreon reward tiers. Certain rewards don't seem to be all that popular, so I'm going to dump them. What I'll be replacing them with, I'm not yet sure. Possibly nothing, since no one has asked for anything in particular. If you've got any ideas, let me know. Also, if there's anything on the list that you've wanted to take advantage of but haven't gotten around to it, drop me a line and we'll get you squared away. I don't have an exact date on which those changes will happen, but I'll post about it on Patreon beforehand. Reach out to me there. And that's all the news that's fit to spit. Current status. Right now I'm on Chapter 22 of Draft 1 with a total of 133,000 words, give or take. If you'll recall, last time I was wondering if I could make 100,000 by this episode. And I did. Go me. Next goal, 150,000 words or chapter 26, or both. Absurd, impossible. You're probably right. In the Star Drifter universe, during Ejok's time, food is, by and large, plentiful and varied. Most space stations are ethnically diverse to one degree or another, and the combination of cheap food, combined with unique culinary traditions, makes eating out an exotic adventure, even for people on a budget and even within the most staid communities. The words plentiful and varied should not be confused with fresh or natural, however, since very little food in space, specifically ships and space stations, is either of those things. 
Moving cargo holds full of perishable fruits, vegetables, meats, and dairy products is not economically viable. This is especially true when you consider the time constraints of in- and outbound journeys to and from star jump points, along with the differential issues associated with subjective time while in jump space, all of which cargo will be exposed to. Factoring in inevitable spoilage losses, you simply can't fit enough fresh food into a cargo hold to make the cruise pay for itself, let alone pull a profit. To be sure, some of these products do get shipped across the stars, but they are considered gourmet or artisan-style foods of limited supply, and consumers are charged accordingly. They do not make up the bulk of the average person's regular diet, nor even that of the most wealthy people. Another thing of note right off the bat is that almost all food, regardless of its taste or appearance, is strictly vegetarian. While it might be nice to imagine that effective mass veganism is a cultural or moral choice for the people of this future time, the truth is far more prosaic. It just comes down to money and convenience. It takes far more time, energy, and physical resources to produce a given amount of animal-based food, either as meat, eggs, dairy, or other products, than it does to produce an equivalent amount of nutritious plant-based food. With the same time, energy, water, nutritional, and space requirements that, say, a cow might require in order to reach harvesting age or to continually produce milk, a modern, high-yield food crop grown in a vertical farm factory through largely automated means can feed many thousands of people. Food chemistry, industrial processing, and creative gastronomy allow these plant-based foods to take nearly any final form. A large number of people in the galaxy go their whole lives without ever tasting animal food products of any kind, and do so free of perceived hardship. Outside of settled worlds, therefore, with plenty of room for growing livestock in their feeds, meat is a rarity in outer space, and is not consumed to any significant degree. The bulk of food moved through space is done so in highly processed, powdered, or liquid forms, pressed into compact blocks or carried in giant bulk tanker holds. Basic constituents, such as vegetable proteins of various kinds, innumerable styles of fats and carbohydrates, as well as food additives, preservatives, and nutritional supplements are shipped by the gigaton around the galaxy. They stem from many thousands of source locales, such as the huge greenbelt stations in Ainspace, and from extensive, often fully automated processing plants tucked away in various corners of settled space. These constituent materials are purchased by food supply houses in different systems, or by restaurant chains directly and combined in creative ways to craft palatable foods of nearly every kind. A typical way of making, say, a plate of French toast begins with a large grower, such as Corabel Combined Farming, Incorporated, owned by the interstellar conglomerate Sakara Health and Nutritional Supplies, ILLC, which is itself owned by the very large multi-territorial corporation Rohir Decentralized Holdings. 
Corabel typically works with a food manufacturer and distributor like Morning Glory Supply, pre-selling them the entire crop output from a set number of growing troughs for a particular period of time from their leased farm holdings on George Washington Carver Agricultural Production and Research Station, one of the larger artificial satellites over in Greenbelt System, and indeed, one of the largest in space. Crops here are planted, tended to, harvested, processed, and packaged up for shipping all through automated means and with a minimum of human labor or direct oversight. For the sake of our breakfast, we'll say this was a wheat crop, half of which would be turned into discrete constituents such as gluten, wheat germ, fiber, vegetable oils, starches, etc., and the other ground into various types of flour. Once it's ready for shipping, Morning Glory Supply hires a cargo outfit to pick up the load of flour and other ingredients from Greenbelt and bring it to their food processing facility in Salvation System, where it's all combined at a huge baking prep facility into bread dough. The dough is poured into specialized tankers that freeze it solid, but which allow for set portions to be thawed without affecting the rest. When the tankers are full, the bulk dough is shipped to various facilities and other star systems where it will be thawed as needed, prepped, and formed into loaves. Then it's baked, sliced, packaged, and shipped to various distribution points within that system, whichever one it happens to be, where retailers purchase it wholesale for their store shelves and home delivery services. Lecithin-based egg substitutes used to make the French toast batter are produced with a similar level of processing as the bread. So are the artificial milk, sugar, butterette, spices, and syrup that make up the rest of the ingredients. Now let's include a glass of our favorite vitamin-enhanced fruit-flavored juice drink, a steaming mug of a dark coffee-like beverage, and maybe some fried meat simulant strips on the side. And what do you know? Breakfast is ready. All of it, start to finish, came from various plant sources grown in gigantic farm factories across the stars. Depending upon the pre-purchaser's desires and the exact varietals planted, farm factories might prep these crop yields for industrial and manufacturing use rather than for food. Grains can be broken down into carbohydrate and nitrogenous compounds. Oils may be highly processed and become ingredients for fuel, lubricants, plastics, paints, adhesives, solvents, and much more. The leaves, stalks, and roots are also harvested and processed, either for large-scale composting to create cheap, effective fertilizers, or to be included in various building materials. One of the latter is moldstone cement which is a popular construction material upon both space stations and terraformed worlds due to its ease of use in the field, ultra-lightweight, relatively high strength versus compression ratings, and moderate flexibility under normal loads. Gene-sculpted food crops, for example the sugarberry, which is a distant and highly modified cousin to wine grapes, are specifically designed to produce large numbers of disparate products. In this case, harvesting sugarberry juice and pulp, which contain very high levels of monosaccharides, is where all of it starts, but hardly where it ends. Sugarberry juice, when even only slightly condensed, can be used as a breakfast topping all on its own. 
It can be mixed with water to make a delicious soft drink and is used in baking, candy making, and for the production of various alcoholic beverages. Of course, none of these things are economically viable on a large scale, using the juice as is, unless your company happens to be close to a sugarberry farm, which most aren't. The constituent elements of the juice, such as flavorings, sugars, and acids, are separated out and sold on their own. Sugarberry juice consumed in another star system would be reconstituted from these separate products, or more likely from just a few of them, mixed with even cheaper ingredients, with enough food coloring added in to make it look like the real thing. Food is the focus of this episode, but understand that most crops have far more potential uses than simply being eaten. Sugarberry juice, therefore, gets hyper-processed for use in hundreds of thousands of food and industrial products, either in liquid form and frozen for ease of shipping, or reduced to distinctive red crystals and pressed into large blocks that require load bots and other industrial cargo machines to move and stack. Sugarberry products are sold to industrial processors who break them down into a number of carbohydrate and nitrogen forms. Various oligosaccharides and polysaccharides used in manufacturing and in the production of medicines, 3D bioprinting compounds, surgical materials, nutritional supplements, heavy metal separation, and more are obtained from the juice, the berry skins, or processed out from the leaves, stems, vines, and root systems. Fibrous materials left behind are either composted or sold to textile, paper, and building material manufacturers as ingredients for their own product lines. Every single part of this plant has been carefully designed by genetic experts to be useful and therefore profitable. And it's just one crop of thousands developed in the exact same way. The entire lack of waste in the system may seem quite conscientious or green, but things have progressed like this for primarily mercenary reasons. Nothing is wasted because waste is just money left on the table. Shipping costs across the stars are omnipresent, and few products are profitable enough, all on their own, to be purchased, processed, packaged, and shipped to other buyers without some sort of ancillary or secondary line of industry being wrapped up in them as well. This is sometimes known as tangential fabrication, or just tange, and virtually every manufacturer, regardless of their main product line, partakes in it. Indeed, some companies are well known for one particular product, but actually make the bulk of their revenue through tange production that's publicly unassociated with their brand. The lines between food and chemical production, industry, and manufacturing are quite blurry in this future time, and often don't exist at all. A company that grows or pre-purchases large amounts of hemp, for instance, is all of these things at once. Even today, industrial and medicinal hemp has literally thousands of uses. Everything from clothing, building materials, lubricants and cleaning products, to food elements such as flour and nutritional fibers, along with recreational and medicinal pharmaceuticals, the potential of which we're only just beginning to understand. By Ejox time, such things are much better understood and taken full advantage of.
So it's not just sugar berries that get broken down into multiple constituent products to be shipped hither and yon across light years upon gigantic cargo starships. Distributors sell all sorts of fruit and vegetable constituents to food manufacturers and suppliers in various star systems, who cater to a local market largely constrained to that system due to shipping costs. Industry-wide, it's cheaper to craft the food into a final consumer form from ingredients purchased in bulk than it is to ship it directly in whole form. These ingredients are recombined and mixed with assorted fillers, flavors, salt, sugar, and binders from other sources to create brand new foods intended to emulate the familiar forms, textures, and tastes of the originals. A resulting product might or might not look like, say, an apple, and generally won't taste much like one either, but it'll be called one. Yes, an apple, sort of. It'll have a very long shelf life, thanks to advanced preservatives. It'll be juicy, have a nice crunch, and more or less be a sweet, nutritious representative of a type. Things like this are created with varying degrees of success, as you might imagine. But even if food science and product development fail, marketing and advertisement may yet win the day. In our time, here in the 21st century, some artificial flavors are effectively ubiquitous in certain cultures. That fake grape flavor, for instance, often found in soft drinks and candies in North America. It's distinctive and identifiable across brands and product lines, yet has little in common with actual grapes. And the purple coloring of the products it's used in is composed of several artificial food dyes that are separate additives entirely. Imagine if your only exposure to grapes throughout the entirety of your life was through products using that artificial flavor. It would effectively be grape to you. You would have no other basis of comparison. Now imagine if nearly Every flavor in every food you ate came to you in this exact same way. Strictly standardized throughout a gigantic industry, spanning the lifeless reaches of outer space for a vast and ever-increasing range of foods and food products. This may sound like a bleak future filled with the taste of chemicals, but centuries of culinary and food science research have resulted in some incredible advances. Many artificial ingredients quite accurately simulate the real things, at least to the average palate. New flavors, textures, and preparation techniques can make processed foods quite enjoyable. Even fine restaurants and ludor-freighted chefs, which is the future equivalent of the Michelin Award rating system we have on Earth right now, routinely work with such products and just as is true with even the freshest and most natural of foods, some brands and sources are better than others. Now, universally processed foods may be the future, but it is commercial shipping that ensures hunger is an uncommon problem. Or, where it does exist, is due to isolated emergency conditions, such as war and natural disasters, or the inevitable result of incompetence or malfeasance on the part of political leaders. As mentioned in previous episodes, freight hauling is the galaxy's life's blood, and the most important cargo content moved is food, either in its final or constituent forms. 
Delays or mistakes in the delivery of goods to space stations and settlements that are light years from each other could easily cause famine or malnutrition. Scurvy, for instance, should be unknown to the people of this time. But one simple change in the shipping routes to or from a small space community with infrequent traffic might easily give rise to this nutritional deficiency in its residents over the course of just a few months or even weeks. In this case, the effects of malnutrition will generally show up in children first. This is known as the canary effect and is considered an emergency requiring immediate attention and correction. Because this is a well-recognized danger, most settlements of any size that import a large proportion of their food have health experts in positions of authority within the policy chain of their import-export systems. These positions are sometimes appointed or sometimes elected, depending upon local governmental structures, but they are held by people with a specific range of expertise. Some are medical or nutrition specialists. Some are professional chefs. Some are recognized food critics. Even famous gourmands have been known to get involved. Whatever their backgrounds, the job of these people is to ensure that their space station or isolated settlement gets a constant and ready supply of nutritionally viable food or food ingredients delivered regularly and without fail. The people in these positions have a voice in such widely varying aspects of government as shipping and labor policies, import-export quotas, long- and short-term economic plans, general infrastructure, and the licensing and oversight of food service providers, that is, restaurants, along with that of distributors and retailers within their communities. Someone has to have an eye on the larder at all times lest it go bare, along with the budget, authority, and training to keep it full. In the Star Drifter short story, Open All Night, an important plot point had to do with renewing the operating license of a particular restaurant. The laws and policies dictating those licensing details would have originated in the office or through the efforts of someone with this job. Now then, the human diaspora and general cultural blending of this future have given rise to many types of cuisine and food styles. And as ethnicities evolve and change, so too do their culinary traditions. All the old food styles from good old Mother Earth are still around, but so are plenty of new ones. In large, busy space settlements, it's not unusual to find Italian restaurants and markets alongside others such as Mexican, Japanese, Arabic, Ethiopian, Chinese, German, and more. But you'll also find Hida stalls now, where everything is steamed, yet highly flavorful. Bodetta kiosks, selling a range of kebab-style foods for busy stationers on the go. Fancy, upscale, casetal restaurants, offering a distinctive cuisine that blends native South American, African, and Asian traditions in new and exciting ways. Molecular gastronomy has evolved into a popular food style, resulting in a wide range of fast food, self-serve, and sit-down eateries offering unique and ever-changing creations to people hungry for something new. One particular style of food that has arisen over the years is named after an emerging ethnicity, a semi-nomadic people known collectively as the Zadraba. 
The Drabins are tribal and can be found throughout much of outer space these days, though rarely in large numbers. Most stations of any size will have a street, or part of one at least, dominated by people of this ethnic group, most of whom will be members of the same tribe. The history of the Zadraba involves extensive cross-pollination with other cultures and strange political bedfellows upon Terra in years past, resulting in a rather unlikely blending of Eastern European and Pan-Pacific cultures, including Samoan and Polynesian, along with healthy doses of Middle Eastern and Hispanic traditions. Zadraban food would be as big a subject as any other regional or traditional cuisine tends to be, so we'll just focus on one particular food that has, with some surprise, spread far beyond the confines of its cultural beginnings. The Zadraban bread style known as borst is a rapidly growing favorite among stations and settlements in the Alliance and elsewhere. This is a hearty rye, wheat, and rice flour bread that's made, in part, with beets. Formed into dense, round loaves, traditional borst has a thick, umber-colored crust and chewy pink interior due to the beet juice. Borst bread is generally sliced cake-style into thin wedges, which in turn allow for sandwich recipes that emphasize the change in texture and density as it is eaten. Any type of sandwich is possible with borst, but one Zadraban favorite is called an Ika sandwich, sometimes pronounced in low speak as Eeka. It uses some sort of chopped processed meat or meat simulant, sliced pickled vegetables of various kinds, and a type of fried plantain spread known as schmear, a term borrowed from Yiddish. This is accompanied by spicy condiments such as wasabi-laced mustards, chili sauces, and something known as pepper cream, which sees powdered black pepper mixed with the margarine-like spread called butterette. These sandwiches are distinctive bright pink wedges, just short of dinner plate size, often cut into two or more pieces and shared among friends. Commonly paired with soft drinks, they represent substantial mid-shift meals for hard-working spacers and stationers. Puddings and custards are popular desserts in the future, and along the border of noble space, they're often flavored with rose water and pistachios, making for sweet, fragrant treats that are easy to love and hard to forget. Such dishes are also the basis for many others, including ice creams and candies. A popular home-style dessert is a future version of an ancient pudding style known as duff, made with breadcrumbs, flour, egg, and milk simulants, butterette, sweeteners, dried fruit and nut products, spices, and other flavors. Duff has many variations, ranging from a type of cake to something like bread pudding, and it pairs especially well with coffee and hot, strong tea. Sweet and savory crepes are popular in corporate space. Using just one simple recipe for these thin pancakes, a person can prepare three meals a day, each quite different, including a main dish and dessert. The utility of and ease of preparation involved with crepes makes them quite popular with harried working folk in the corporate territory, where single-parent families are extremely common. 
Savory crepe recipes might include onions, mushrooms, beans, cheese, and meat simulants. Dessert crepes can have fruit and spices, syrups and flavored sugars. Also jams, jellies, compotes, chocolate, nut butters, caramel spreads, and much more can be added. In Book 2, Street Candles, Ejok discovers a traditional noble space breakfast called Naban. This is a porridge made from various nuts and grains, usually served with sausage, either real or simulant. Sweet syrups of various kinds are a typical topping. Sometimes dismissed as peasant food, Naban is gaining ground in the Alliance and elsewhere, since it is hearty, nutritious, and inexpensive to make. A large pot of Naban can be prepared and served immediately, while leftovers can be refrigerated and served the next day by just adding a bit of water to the thickened porridge. Some people actually take the solidified Naban at this stage, slice it into small cakes, fry them on a griddle, and top them with fruit spreads, onions, fried peppers, or nearly anything else. Here's a quick recipe for a single serving of naban, which can be scaled up easily. One tablespoon each of the following. Pearl barley, hulled millet, red quinoa, granola, pine nuts, white or brown rice, wheat flour, or any kind of flour. The exact variety of grains used in this dish varies widely throughout noble space, so whatever you can find in the stores or have readily on hand is probably fine. Next, we have one piece of bacon or bacon simulant, chopped, two large breakfast sausages, real or simulant, a half teaspoon of salt, one tablespoon butter or butterette, and two cups cold water. In a medium saucepan, brown bacon with the butterette. Add cold water, salt, and flour. Stir until the flour is mixed in and there are no lumps. Add the grains and sausages. Bring to a boil, then cover and reduce heat to a simmer. Cook for 20 minutes or until the different grains are soft and the sausages are done. If dry or sticking to the bottom, add more water. Can be served immediately or can be kept on very low heat for some time, adding water as needed. Top with thin drizzles of maple, agave, or fruit syrups. Or you can try honey, molasses, or even jelly. Light meals, appetizers, and snack foods are very common on space stations, since they're inexpensive, fast, and tasty. Ejok mentions something called chip chunks on numerous occasions. These are a well-known fast food in Ain space. Recipes vary, but chip chunks generally consist of textured vegetable protein, moistened with unsweetened soy or nut milks, along with potato powder, salt, and spices. The resulting mixture is pressed into small, irregular bite-sized pieces and deep-fried until crispy and golden brown on the outside, soft and crumbly on the inside. They are fattening and generally considered junk food, though gourmet versions exist, along with ethnic varieties loaded with shredded meat simulants and exotic flavorings. A type of bar food mentioned in Book 3 Risk Analysis is called scobble, this is a descendant dish of Canadian poutine, consisting of deep-fried bean curd, that is tofu, and large steak fries, or chips as they're known in the UK. Drizzled over the top, or drenched, depending upon your taste, 
is a spicy brown gravy, often flavored with pepper, garlic, and onions. Some places add a heap of sweet caramelized onions on top of this, sprinkled with cumin and chili powder, along with a dash of lemon juice or cider vinegar. Scobble is often available in huge platter-sized servings, which is then shared by everyone at the table. It pairs especially well with beer and spirits. So, in general summation, food of the future is highly processed and refined, though flavorful, nutritious, and reflecting the culinary traditions of every ethnicity and space. Spices are the heart and soul of these foods, rescuing bland dishes and elevating exceptional ones to tremendous heights. Considerable cargo space on even the largest of superhauler starships is used to move refined foods, food constituents, spices, and other ingredients. The massive poverty that exists upon the planet Terra was mentioned in a previous episode, so I won't cover it again now, except to add that widespread hunger and starvation does exist there, but not because of any production shortages. Terra's problems are entirely man-made, endemic, and thus far intractable. That planet aside, therefore, and ignoring the occasional hiccup in deliveries, as well as the incompetence, indifference, or even deliberately injurious policies of the odd government or corporate leader, few people in this future time ever go to bed hungry, which represents a tremendous improvement in the human condition, no matter how you slice it. So that's all for now about Star Drifter and food. There's much more that could be said, and I may just say it at some point. If so, expect more recipes. Don't say I didn't warn you. Next time, we'll delve into a subject often skated over in speculative fiction, namely the economics of star-spanning civilizations. Money doesn't just make the world go around in Ejok's time, it makes the galaxy itself spin. Ugly as its pursuit can sometimes be, wealth, or at least the dream of it, has allowed the human race of this future to expand out, settle, and prosper in the unending desert of outer space. There'd be no colonies out there, no space stations, no ships or jobs without money. And giant cephalopodic corporations are the norm. Just as it's always been, there are the haves and the have-nots such as the human condition. But how does one get ahead? With age reassignment procedures growing ever more common, people of this era are living longer than ever. So what does retirement look like? How do territories pay for their social, infrastructural, and military requirements? And how do average people get by on a day-to-day -day basis in cultures moving faster than light? We'll take a look at all these questions about the future of money and try to imagine something that might actually work next time on Voice from the Void.
You have been listening to Voice from the Void, a podcast about Star Drifter and the Star Drifter universe, written and hosted by David Collins Rivera. The theme music is a piece called Wicked Ways by Kilobyte. That's K-I-L-L-A-B-Y-T-E, featuring Danica Nadeau, and is available through No Copyright Sounds at ncs.io slash wickedwaysid. This podcast contains discussion about fictional works and characters and is not meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Voice from the Void is copyright 2018 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Thank you for listening. Take care.